Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. There's a black male running down the street. Those were the words that Greg McMichael said to a 911 operator just before his son, Travis, shot and killed Ahmad Arbery in Glynn County, Georgia. And that's all Ahmad Arbery did. He was a black guy running down the street in a white neighborhood. That's all it took for three white men to hunt him down and end his life. Late last week, just before the holiday, a jury handed down 23 guilty verdicts against those three men. They all now face mandatory sentences of life in prison. It'll be up to a judge to decide whether their sentences are served with or without the possibility of parole. Those verdicts come one week after a jury in another high-profile case acquitted Kyle Rittenhouse of murdering two people in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Now, these cases have become flashpoints in conversations about race, policing, and our criminal legal system in America. And, of course, they are not the only cases. This last decade, really, has been punctuated by instances in which African Americans are killed, often by police, often for no reason, and many times filmed so that the world can see what imbalance and inequality look like in our country. And finally, it seems, we're actually having some real conversations about those imbalances. Where do they come from? Why do they persist? How can we make the future look different? But what do cases like these, the one in which three white men were convicted of killing Ahmaud Arbery for no reason, what do they really expose and teach us about these double standards and the disparities that exist? And what do they not tell us? That's where we want to begin the conversation today and dig all hour into those questions and what we ought to be drawing out of these convictions in the killing of Ahmad Arbery. We want to hear from you, of course, our listeners. Call and tell us how you're taking all of this in, what you're making of the fact that these men were convicted of killing Ahmad Arbery. Does this mark something of a turning point in your mind? Does this somehow start to explain how we correct all of the inequalities and imbalances? Or do you think that this was just one case, one case in which a jury got it right, but that it can't stand very stalwart against the mountain of evidence on the other side that still suggests black lives don't matter as much as they should? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDED Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. 
and we'll work you into the conversation. And we've got two really wonderful experts with us today who have thought a lot about everything that I just said. Yasmin Kader is the Deputy Legal Director at the American Civil Liberties Union and Director of the ACLU's Trone Center for Justice and Equality. She's got an op-ed for Common Dreams titled, True Measures of Justice Go Beyond Verdicts in the Rittenhouse or Arbery Trials. Yasmin Kader, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much. It's a wonderful opportunity to be here and wonderful to meet you. Yes. Also with us is Cynthia Lee. She's a professor of law at the George Washington University Law School and an expert on race and self-defense. She's got an op-ed in Politico titled, Ahmad's Killers Are Guilty, but Trayvon's Shooter Went Free. Cynthia Lee, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So I want to start with both of you just giving me your reaction to the verdicts in this case. I have to say that when the jury didn't come back too quickly, I was a little worried. And I thought perhaps it was a sign that they couldn't sort this out among themselves and that they would either come back uh, hung or perhaps with, uh, with not guilty verdicts. Uh, Yasmin, what was, what was your reaction? Well, what we witnessed was really I think for many, a historical anomaly, and that is that a nearly all-white jury in the Deep South convicted three white defendants in what I think we need to call a lynching of Ahmad Aubrey. Mm. Um, and, and the reason this was such an anomaly is not just history, but what we learned here was that this case almost did not even come to trial. The local prosecutor obstructed the initial investigation of the defendants, one of whom was a former police officer and an investigator, for the DA's office. The officials suppressed the video of the slaying and any meaningful pursuit of the assailants for months before local activists finally forced their hands. Mm-hmm. And the, the assailants invoked a Jim Crow era citizen's arrest law to attempt to justify the killing. And so many will say that this is a barometer for how far we've come since the racial reckoning that was sparked by George Floyd's murder and Breonna Taylor's murder, et cetera. But in my opinion, that would be a mistake because we have such a long way to go as a nation to live up to our principles of equal justice. Mm -hmm. Uh, Cynthia Lee, tell me what you think of what happened in Flynn County, Georgia. Well, when I heard the verdicts, I felt a huge sense of relief because before the verdicts were announced, I, even though I thought the prosecution had proven its case beyond a reasonable doubt, you just never know what a jury will do. And as Jasmine pointed out, I, I too knew that the first two district attorneys handling the case thought that the defendants were justified in killing Arbery, and, and that's why the McMichaels went for more than two months without being arrested or charged. And I knew that if just one juror on that jury saw the facts the same way those district attorneys did, then the jury would not be able to reach a unanimous verdict and a mistrial would would have to be declared. So I I was just very relieved when I heard the verdicts announced. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Yasmin, I want to talk about that word you used in your initial answer. You are writing, in fact, that Arbery's death must be understood 
as a lynching. Now, that's a word that has powerful historical context in this in this country. Uh, but I think most people, most white people in particular, would say it is something of the past. It's not something that we see in modern day America. Tell me, tell me why you affix that that label to what happened. You know, there's two reasons that I that I think it's really important that we characterize this as such. The first is because it it was a lynching. I mean, the NAACP has defined a lynching as a violent act used by whites to terrorize and control black people in the South. And this was an incident of racial terror violence where we had a black man who was, as you noted, jogging through a mostly white neighborhood, Satilla Shores, and an assumption on the part of the assailants that he must be guilty of something, and then chasing him with their guns and their pickups and shooting him in a chest. That's a violent act used to terrorize and control. But the other reason I think it's so important to call it a lynching is because of our history of lynchings and the importance of noting them as they are in terms of systemic change. Mr. Arbery did not die in vain. The world watched that video because his community didn't rest. They made sure it got out. And just as the world saw the open casket photograph of Emmett Till, Hmm. They saw what happened to Mr. Arbery. And what that did was bring international attention to racialized violence, which is still at play here. And it also showed the limitations and vulnerabilities of our society that exposed greater structural racism and that that is alive and well. So the word lynching brings to note not just this incident and how it is part of our history, but also the underlying exposure uh, value of the exposure of of that community. Hmm. So I think it's largely because of the, his sacrifice and other sa- historical sacrifice that we're now in the midst of a really monumental reckoning of racial oppression. It it just I have to say, I remember um, George Floyd's daughter being interviewed, mm-hmm. and and she said, "My daddy changed the world." Well, so did Ahmad Aubrey. So, so I, I also have to say that as an African American and an African American father in particular, what what you're describing is so harrowing and so frightening, and really does reflect the way in which I think um, uh, African American parents and African Americans even who are not parents, are, are, are living through this century and this decade. And, and there's, something, there's something about that that just strikes me as um, unpredictable and, and uh, just out of nowhere. I, I mean, if you had told me when I was in my 20s that in my 50s I would be afraid to let my teenage children drive a luxury SUV, uh, you know, on on a, 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 a an out of state trip because I just don't want them ever to interact with the police in that situation. I, I, I would have said there's no way that's going to still be the case in 2021. And yet, as you point out, um, 
the 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 context, the historical context of violence against African Americans and the African American community is as powerful in 2021, perhaps as it was in 1921. Is that fair? Things are 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 different, and then, as you point out, in many ways, the same. But I think that when we're looking at that fear, and I hear you, I'm also African-American parent in my 50s with uh, children that I, every day when they go out in the world, I wonder what is coming their way. It's not just the threat of racialized violence, but it is also the reality of structural racism. And that, I think, is something that I didn't expect to be the case, that we wouldn't have progressed farther than we than we are on those points as well. So I think it's fair that we need to be concerned. I think it's fair that we ha- need to be energized and working toward progress. But I think we need to look deeper at the other structures of racism that um, are not out and out uh, the type of violence that we've seen here, but are a different type of systemic oppression, mm-hmm. which is a different type of violence. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm talking about the Ahmad Arbery uh, verdicts, the verdicts in the murder of Ahmad Arbery uh, with uh, Yasmin Kader, who is the deputy legal director at the American Civil Liberties Union and director of the ACLU's Trone Center for Justice and Equality. She's written an op-ed for Common Dreams titled True Measures of Justice Go Beyond Verdicts in the Rittenhouse or Arbery Trials. Also with us is Cynthia Lee. She's a professor of law at the George Washington University Law School, an expert on race and self-defense. She's got an op-ed in Politico titled Ahmad's Killers Are Guilty, but Trayvon's Shooter Went Free. Here's why. Uh, We want to hear from you during this conversation as well. Uh, these verdicts in the cases uh, of against the white men in Georgia who killed Ahmad Arbery while he was simply jogging through a white neighborhood came down just before uh, the holiday break. What did you make of these verdicts? Uh, did they inform your sense of the reckoning that is happening in America right now where we're talking, I think, more frankly about systemic inequality, its history, it's present and how we make a different future? Or did you think that this was maybe just a single case where a jury got it right, where uh, 12 men and women uh, sat down, looked at the facts and decided that there wasn't another way to adjudicate uh, this case and that it doesn't necessarily reflect anything larger about uh, systemic inequality or racism? policing, all of the things that we've been talking about. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll uh, try to include you in the conversation that way. Particularly interested today in how you compare what we saw last week in these trials of white men who killed Ahmad Arbery, uh, and the verdict in the Rittenhouse trial, which was also pretty recent, uh, where Kyle Rittenhouse was acquitted of killing two people in Kenosha, Wisconsin, uh, on self-defense grounds. Again, 313-577-1019. You can also go to 
Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation as well. Uh, uh, Cynthia Lee, I want to talk a little about uh, the comparison between this case and uh, the trial of George Zimmerman, the, the, the man who killed Trayvon Martin. You say that these two cases have some eerie similarities. Uh, talk about how they're the same and what you think explains the stark difference in the outcomes. Yes. In, in terms of similarities, in both cases, you had a defendant who thought a young black man seemed out of place in the neighborhood, who suspected the young black male was engaging in criminal behavior. In particular, it was burglary in both cases was suspected. In both cases, you had a defendant who shot and killed an unarmed young black male and then claimed it was self-defense. Uh, and in both cases, you had a defendant who claimed he thought the blackmail victim was going to gain control of his gun and use it against him. And then in both cases, the men responsible taking, uh, for taking another human being's life, um, both cases, the men were not arrested immediately and may never have been arrested if it hadn't been for nationwide protests demanding accountability in the Trayvon Martin case. George Zimmerman wasn't arrested for six weeks, and it was only after the facts of the case got out to the public and people started marching in the streets demanding accountability and holding vigils for Trayvon Martin. And then in the Arbery case, the McMichaels, too, as we talked about earlier this hour, they weren't arrested for, I think it was 74 days after the shooting, and it was only because video of the shooting was leaked and the and then caused or or there were nationwide protests demanding accountability. Now, how to explain the differences in the outcome? There's a lot of uh, factors that, of course, go into any jury verdict. But here are some factors that I think explain the differences. First, I think the country is in a really different place today than it was in 2013 when the Zimmerman trial took place. We have to remember that the movement for black lives really got its start only after George Zimmerman was acquitted mm -hmm. of all charges, and it gained momentum after the death of George Floyd in May of 2020. That movement for black lives turned a spotlight on racial injustice and the ways in which black lives are not valued the same as other lives and it really helped to change attitudes about race and racial justice in this, in this, or injustice, I should say, in this country, as reflected in the thousands of people of all races and ethnicities who took part in the protests, who took to the streets in support of racial justice for George Floyd and the other black and brown individuals who had been killed at the hands of police and individuals like Ahmaud Arbery. He wasn't killed by a police officer, but by civilians. Mm -hmm. The video of Ahmad Arbery's death came out in May of 2020, just a few weeks before George Floyd's death. And, and Arbery's death became a reminder of how black men are seen as dangerous threats, not just to law enforcement, but to civilians as well. Another difference is that in the Trayvon Martin case, while there were widespread protests in 2012, when people first learned of Martin's death, and the fact that Zimmerman was allowed to walk away without being arrested. 
By the time Zimmerman was tried a year later in 2013, the racial protests had died down and there wasn't that same nationwide spotlight on the case as there had been a year earlier. In Arbery's case, the racial protests continued for months after George Floyd's death. I mean, we saw people in the street way well after the death of George Floyd. Mm -hmm. And even though we didn't have people marching through this in the nation, marching through the streets during the trial, we had members of the black community who were standing vigil outside the courthouse every day. And we had members, prominent members of the black community in the courtroom sitting with the family as a reminder that this was a case that was very important to the black community. And we also had a different judge and a different set of prosecutors. Um, in the Zimmerman case, the, the judge made clear she wanted to run a colorblind trial. Uh, she refused to let the prosecutors use the term racial profiling to describe Zimmerman's actions, even though it was widely thought that he had engaged in racial profiling. And the prosecution acquiesced, uh, basically telling the judge, we're not going to talk about race. Um, we have no intention of calling attention to race. And then in closing statements, the prosecution said, told the jury, this case is not about race. It's about right and wrong. And then after the trial, the lead prosecutor on the case told the press that this case was not about race. So there was this denial of the significance of race. Whereas in the Arbery, Arbery uh, case, the judge presiding over the trial seemed to have more of an awareness of the racial tensions underlying the case. You could see this in his rulings um, when he expressed concern about the jury, um, the jury that ended up being mostly white uh, because the defense struck almost all the black jurors from the jury. Um, and you could, this prosecutor seemed very aware of the implicit bias that probably led the men to do what they did. So we have all these differences that, that there, there's of course differences in the facts as well, but these are some of the differences that don't always get highlighted. Yeah. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about the convictions of the three white men who killed Ahmad Arbery while he was jogging through a neighborhood. Uh, we want to continue to hear from you on the phones and on social media. We've already got some folks queued up to speak with us about this. Jerry in Detroit, Janet in Detroit, you'll be up first. If you want to join them on the phones, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter where you already stockpiling a few comments uh, and let us know what you think about the convictions in this case, how they fit into the narrative of systemic inequality and racism. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. 
You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guests this hour are Yasmin Kader. She is the Deputy Legal Director at the American Civil Liberties Union and Director of the ACLU's Trone Center for Justice and Equality. Also with us is Cynthia Lee, a professor of law at the George Washington University Law School and an expert on race and self-defense. We're talking about the convictions of three white men in Flynn County, Georgia, for killing Ahmad Arbery while he was doing nothing more than jogging through a white neighborhood. Uh, our guest, Yasmin Kader, is comparing this to lynching, uh, the kinds of uh, state-sponsored even uh, violence and uh, absolutely um, uh, a huge part of this country's racist history. Uh, other people are also making that comparison and talking about how vicious this was and how deserving it is of the stiffest of legal consequences. The three men who were convicted face mandatory life sentences. A judge will decide whether that is life without parole. We want to hear from you about what you think about these convictions, how you think it fits into the context of what we've been talking about in this country now for a little more than a year uh, the the kinds of conversations we're having, the kinds of things that I think we're willing to consider that perhaps before seemed off the table. Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter, and uh, we'll try to work you into the conversation that way. Let's start today with Janet in Detroit. Janet, welcome to the show. Good morning, and thank you for taking my call. Mm -hmm. um, I am originally from Alabama, mm. but I have been in Michigan since 1970. This is where I did my working years. But my son and I and his dad were planning to go home to Alabama uh, for Christmas. And my uh, husband uh, can't take the trip with us. I had planned to stay. But I won't stay. And this is my point is to your your um, point about driving an SUV upscale mm -hmm. and being afraid mm -hmm. to come back traveling interstate. And we have had the experience of where we were coming back to Detroit, my son and I, stopped by a state trooper at night who didn't give him a ticket, but started questioning him about the vehicle and the rims that were on the car and if we had and made the wrong answers or the wrong move to reach to the glove compartment, there would have been trouble. Mm. My mm. son was taken off the highway years ago, coming back from college, taken up into the hills of Kentucky, and uh, it, 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 he was driving alone. I won't I won't stay mm. on the vacation. I will come back with him because I feel like that's an extra measure of protection to keep him because he's a black male traveling alone. Mm. Yes. Uh, Janet, I really appreciate you calling and sharing uh, that experience. Uh, Yasmin Cater, this, this is life for us as African Americans, and I'm not sure that uh, white America always quite understands 
how pervasive this is and, and how much just a part of our existence uh, is framed by these kinds of experiences and the fears that come with them. I know. And I, let me first just say to, to Janet, thank you so much for sharing that. And I'm a mother too. <laughs> I'm a wife. And I think about these things every time my husband and my children step out of the house. Mm. The fact that we're living with that either in the front or the back of our minds means that it is a different walk for us. And that is just so true. What I want to say, though, is that that doesn't mean that we stop the struggle or we stop fighting. And it's part of the reason I have to tell you that I'm so proud to be here at the ACLU because we are standing up for the rights of all people, including and especially black and brown people who are facing this type of violence and harassment. And we are here to combat that type of, of, of fear in all the structures that we have from police violence and harassment that Janet just noted to discriminatory election practices, to discriminatory discipline and criminalization of our children in school, to discrimination and bias in housing and employment. And so while I hear um, Stephen, me and you and Janet talking about this reality for ourselves and our children, mm -hmm. I do have tremendous hope because I know that there's good people that are still here that are not giving up and that we're going to fight it on all levels. Yeah. Yeah. Again, Janet, uh, really appreciate the call uh, and uh, you sharing that that really frightening and real uh, experience. Uh, let's go to Jerry in Detroit. Jerry, what's on your mind? Uh, good morning, Stephen. Mm -hmm. Stephen, um, uh, I dig the bumper music. I hope to shop for it someday. <laughs> That's done by uh, Sam Bobian, who is uh, one of the engineers here at uh, WDET. He provides all of the music that we have here on Detroit Today. So uh, we can put you in touch with him if you want. But uh, what's your question, Jerry? All right. Um, first a comment and then a question. Um, um, I don't know if you, if, if a lot of times when you, when cases like this come, come like this, especially if it's um, like it's the Trayvon Martin case or the Ahmaud Arbery case or a lot of the racist police shootings, the tendency on the part of a lot of racist white people, particularly on the right, is to basically blame the victim for their own deaths, um, and they will um, they will tell all sorts of lies about the about the um, about the person who died because mm -hmm. being dead, we'll, we'll never hear their side of the story. And um, also, um, I like I like to ask the um, the guest um, if she thinks the sort of kind of right wing white male gun culture plays a role in a lot of these shooters because it um the white man tends to have a quite a long love affair with firearms mm. uh, jerry really appreciate the call and the really provocative questions uh, uh cynthia uh, you say that it's important to highlight race in uh, certain trials and that's based on decades of social science research uh, in this case the defense made no bones about their appeal to the what they believed, I think, would be the racist instincts of at least one juror. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure. And I, you know, I don't I don't sit and watch trials frequently, um, but I, I'm not sure I saw 
or I have ever seen a, a defense strategy that was so predicated on the idea of dehumanizing the victim on the basis of racist tropes as I did in in this case. Uh, can you talk about what that social science research tells us about that kind of strategy? Yes, yes. And I, and I want to thank the caller. Thank you, Jerry, for your comment. And, and you're so right that there is a tendency to, on the part of certain folks to blame the victim for their own death. And we saw this in the Ahmad Arbery case. And it was highlighted when one of the defense attorneys, Laura Hogue, an attorney for Gregory McMichael suggested that Arbery came into the neighborhood where he was shot to engage in criminal activity. And she invoked this very ugly stereotype about blacks and, and actually drew gasps from the courtroom mm -hmm. and harsh criticism from legal observers when she stated, quote, turning Ahmad Arbery into a victim after the choices he made does not reflect the reality of what brought Amard Aubrey to Satilla Shores in khaki shorts with no socks to cover his long, dirty toenails. Mm. I mean, I was aghast when I heard that. I couldn't believe. And I I'm really glad that this did not work with the jury. I think there was an attempt there to play to a certain mindset that would say, uh, would agree that um, with the dehumanization that this comment reflected and, and the triggering of, of racial stereotypes about African-Americans as, as criminals, as, um, and, and that's what this case was all about, was these men who assumed that Arbery, because he wasn't in the from the neighborhood, that he must have been running away from a crime scene, that he must have been doing something criminal at the construction site. He must have been stealing something, and that's why he was jogging in the neighborhood. Um, now, with respect to the social science research, there's actually several lines of important social research um, that, uh, that intersect in this case. Um, so one line of research we know about is the decades of social science research that shows that most of us are influenced by negative stereotypes mm -hmm. about black individuals, including what I call the black as criminal stereotype that links blacks with violence, dangerousness, and criminality. And there's lots of research that shows that individuals are more likely to perceive mildly aggressive behavior as more threatening when performed by a black person than when performed by a white person, and that most of us are more likely to see hostility in African-American faces than in white faces, even with the same expression. And the implicit association test that's run out of Harvard has confirmed that most of us, even the most egalitarian of us, tend to associate whites with positive things and blacks with negative things. Mm. And all of this is at a subconscious level. These implicit associations can translate into deadly results. So you have numerous what are called what I call shooter bias studies uh, that find that people are quicker to see a gun in the hands of a black person than they are to see a gun in the hands of a white person, and that this is true even when the black person is actually unarmed. Mm. 
Hmm. Now, less well-known, and this is something that I try to highlight in my uh, article on um, Trayvon Martin that is referenced in my op-ed in Politico, is decades of social science research that indicates that when race is not made salient or, or not highlighted, jurors tend to treat black defendants more harshly than similarly situated white defendants. So you have the exact same facts. Mm-hmm. These jurors are tested, the exact same facts. But if you don't highlight race, then the jurors tend to, to favor white defendants, and they don't convict white defendants as much as they convict black defendants, similarly situated black defendants. However, and this is what the amazing thing is, when race is highlighted, <clears throat> then jurors tend to treat similarly situated black and white defendants the same. And the research suggests that the, the researchers theorize that the reason for this is that when race is made salient, jurors may be more on guard and may consciously try to suppress what would otherwise be stereotype congruent automatic responses that would otherwise take over mm. and, and guide their decision making. If race is not made salient, if it's not highlighted, then they may be less likely to monitor their behavior for signs of prejudice and therefore more likely to render judgments based on racial bias or tainted by, I should say, tainted by racial bias. Mm. Wow. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this really interesting and incisive conversation about the convictions of the three white men who killed Ahmad Aubrey. We're also going to continue to include you in the conversation. We'll hear from Melissa in Metro Detroit and Bill in Farmington Hills next. We'll get to some of our social media comments as well. If you want to join us, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there and become part of the program that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guests this hour are Yasmin Cater, who's Deputy Legal Director at the ACLU and Director of the ACLU's Trone Center for Justice and Equality. She's got an op-ed for Common Dreams titled, True Measures of Justice Go Beyond the Verdicts in the Rittenhouse or Arbery Trials. Also with us is Cynthia Lee. She's a professor of law. George Washington University Law School and an expert on race and self-defense. She's got an op-ed in Politico titled Ahmad's Killers Are Guilty, but Trayvon's Shooter Went Free. Here's why. Uh, We're talking about uh, these convictions last week in uh, the trial against the three white men who killed Ahmad Arbery while he was jogging through a white neighborhood in Georgia. Uh, What do those convictions tell us about where we are in the discussions about uh, racism and systemic inequality, uh, which have, I think, reached a real intensity over the last year and a half since the murder of George Floyd in uh, Minneapolis. Uh, what What is next? Where are we headed with all of this? Is this conviction uh, a sign that we are taking all of these things more seriously? Uh, is it 
uh, a pivot point, perhaps, in the narrative of uh, violence against African Americans that often, so often, goes unpunished? Uh, or is this just about 12 men and women sitting in a room and getting the facts right uh, in a specific case? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter. Put comments there, and uh, we will include you in uh, the conversation that way. Uh, let's go to Melissa in Metro Detroit. Melissa, what's on your mind? Uh, hi, Stephen. Uh, hello to your guests. Um, so I think the, the verdict is just, and I think it's really disturbing if you go back, and I think one of the guests mentioned, if you go back and look at what uh, began uh, these incidents was that um, property is more important than human life. And I find that really disturbing. And this whole idea of protecting someone else's property by brandishing a gun, um, it's just a rationalization. It's just a justification for some people to intimidate people, provoke conflict, and then kill people. And mm. that's all it is. Yeah, Melissa, it. Melissa, I really appreciate the call uh, and and your comments. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Let's go to Bill in Farmington Hills. Bill, welcome to the program. Thank you for taking my call, mm-hmm. Stephen. Mm-hmm. I am enveloped with so much emotion, but there's three things that I wanted to get out. Uh, the first thing is about the sentencing, which is to come. second thing is about accountability. And the third thing is about uh, training and reform reflection on how law enforcement responds to people on the ground level, which goes across the country, mm-hmm. probably the world. Mm-hmm. The, sen- the sentencing is coming, but it should be scrutinized. The accountability is the most important part of what I wanted to say. The law enforcement, the prosecution, and the officials in Satilla Springs and the way they handle this entire incident should be looked at and people should be lose their job, hmm. punished, whatever it takes, because they just passed the ball one after the other until the state of Georgia got involved. That's what I wanted to say. Yeah. Bill, I, I think that's a really important question is how do you hold officials accountable when uh, it, it seems at least as though uh, they're not doing not doing their jobs uh, Yasmin Cater uh, can you can you address that is that something that we could see in in a case like this is it something that we are perhaps starting to see in 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 some of these cases as uh, as we see more and more of them, that that if you are a prosecutor, if you are an investigator who tries to hide something like this, which is, I mean, I think that's a fair characterization of what uh, what went on uh, in Flint County, Georgia, um, that that you can be held to some account for that. Yes, and I I have to say I think we saw some of that happening here in terms of the initial prosecutor's failure. 
um, as Bill pointed out, to, to, to pursue this case. And there was a holding of accountability, both in terms of people losing their jobs and even facing prosecution themselves. But again, and again, I should say, there's also a need for the community to hold the systems accountable. And in Glynn County, um, this, the community right now is uh, is demanding a civilian complaint review board process, which they don't have for their um, law enforcement. So that's something that the community is asking and demanding in, in the wake of this for holding officials accountable, holding police and law enforcement accountable. So there are ways that that can happen. Um, and I think another really important way to, is that, that we need to vote. We need to vote. We need to think about who are the judges that are we are voting in? Who are the DAs? Are they progressive DAs or are they instead um, prosecutors that are hell bent on furthering mass incarceration? So we really need to be cognizant of our power on accountability as citizens and the importance of our vote. And with that, we need to fight voting disenfranchisement, which is going on across the country. And is again, its own form of violence, mm -hmm. because when we can't come to the polls, when we are systemically shut out of that, that is where we really lose our voice in democracy and our ability to hold people accountable. Mm. Uh, I, I also should give you a chance, uh, Yasmin, to talk about uh, some of your early experiences learning about judging. Uh, you were a clerk for my old friend, uh, Judge Damon Keith, here uh, in Detroit. Uh, obviously, we lost Judge Keith in, uh, in 2019, but uh, his impression, I think, on so many people who, who clerked for him, but also on the criminal justice itself, system itself is, is really indelible. I mean, this is somebody who really understood these kinds of issues and spent decades trying to get the system to do better. He sure did. And he raised a group of law clerks. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I am so honored to be one of them. And he really instilled in us you know, that our, our role in the world is to lift as we climb. And, and, and with that, let me just say, Judge Keith, as you noted, he was a brilliant jurist. He had an agile legal mind. He believed in the Constitution and its principles. Mm -hmm. Most of all, he cared deeply about people, all people, people who were at their best and people at their worst. And I, every time we had a criminal case, and let's be clear, the finger of the government is rarely pointed in this kind of an instance. Instead, the finger of the government is, as we know, the majority of the time or inequitably pointed towards poor people and people of color who find themselves caught up into the criminal legal system. And Judge Keith, every time we had a criminal case, he made sure to vigorously apply those constitutional principles to everyone, that we're all presumed innocent, it, that it's up to the government to try to prove the case, that we're all afforded due process. Mm. And he made sure all of us treasured these principles and that we went on in our lives to apply them to everybody. And I'll tell you a story. Every single time a lawyer representing a poor person accused of a crime came before Judge Keith, after they finished their argument, he would stop and make everybody in the courtroom be quiet and thank that person for mm. standing up 
for people who the world had turned against. So he raised us to always apply the Constitution and to care about people who are at their best and at their worst. And I think when we're thinking about this conviction and we're thinking about the criminal legal system, what we can't afford to forget are all of the victims of mass incarceration. And that is something that Judge Keith cared about deeply. Yes, it absolutely is. Uh, I, I miss him. Uh, terribly and uh, on a personal level, of course, but but I think we miss him just as much uh, in the criminal justice system and and in terms of the things that he would say uh, and do, even up to the very end uh, that uh, that would challenge the system again just to just to be a little better. Um, so that's that's great history uh, for you, Yasmin Cater, that uh, you were one of is many, many law clerks who are uh, doing that work uh, uh, now all over the country. Um, I quickly want to take one more call before we have to end. Don in Southfield. Don, what's on your mind? Hi, how you doing? Good morning. Uh-huh. Go ahead. Um, wonderful show, I might add. Um, I'm an a Uber driver, and um, I'm a person of color. Mm-hmm. And... Um, our passengers were white, and they were intoxicated and acting unruly to where I felt safe, unsafe driving. So um, I thought, well, man, I may need to call the police, get some assistance. But I was scared to mm. because of everything that's going on today, in 2021 even. I mean, I was actually afraid to call the police for help. And so... You know, um, I didn't. I just, you know, um, pulled over and addressed the guy, the gentleman. And, you know, luckily they calmed down uh, to a point to where I felt safe to continue to ride. Yeah. Well, Don, I don't want to cut you off, but we are going to run out of time. But I I think, again, that's so reflective of the the many different ways that as African-Americans we have to account for this imbalance, this idea that uh, that our lives in many cases don't matter as much as other people's and that uh, calling the cops sometimes does not really solve a problem. I, Don, I appreciate your call. Yasmin Cater and Cynthia Lee, you both were wonderful, wonderful guests uh, to help us understand these issues. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. Okay, that's going to do it for us today. I'll be back tomorrow. Hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow. <laughs>